Downtown Productions in cooperation with Zone Radio presents Downtown, the podcast. From the historic Zone Radio studios, here's your host, Rich Kimball. Hey, welcome in. It is indeed Downtown, the podcast. So good to be with you from the Zone Radio studios. Downtown brought to you every week by Renewal by Anderson, your trusted window and door replacement expert of Greater Maine. They're offering free in-home consultation and buy one, get one 40% off with an additional $250 off your entire project. Call 207-275-6622 or visit RenewalByAnderson.com, the better way to a better window. We have got a pair of great conversations for you this week on the program. A little bit later on, author Jennifer Cation Armstrong will talk about her new book on the making of the film Mean Girls called So Fetch. But up first, a very talented uh, actor, comedian, writer, podcast host, and one of the great podcast guests around as well, Paul F. Tompkins, who brings his show Variatopia to Maine and the Waldo Theater coming up on April 30th. Our conversation with Paul F. Tompkins here on Downtown. Paul, thanks for being with us. Rich, thank you for having me. And just a, just a minor correction, my uh, television appearances are countable, but please don't count them. <laughs> oh, all right, all right. I'll set those aside, give them a separate column. <laughs> Perfect, thank you. Well, I am so excited for this show you're bringing to uh, the Waldo Theater uh, April 30th. Variatopia. I know it's a show you've been doing in L.A. and are, and are taking out on the road. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, you know, I, I've always loved variety shows. I, I grew up with them when I was a kid, and then they kind of went away. Um, you don't really see them uh, on TV anymore. And, and every once in a while they try it, but it just doesn't stick. And I don't, I don't know why. I, I think it's a really fun format. And so essentially I'm just doing, um, you know, taking a, a, an existing classic format and just filling it in with modern uh, music and comedy and uh, whatever else we can get on a stage. And I understand you may have some special guests who are part of this adventure as well? Yes, indeed. We never reveal who the guests are because our feeling is the show is the star. So, but it's, the idea is uh, you got to trust me that this is going to be a great show. Um, and sometimes it's the uh, people that you know very well, and it's an exciting surprise to see them. I, 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 there's no better feeling for me than introducing a guest and hearing the love from the audience. They didn't know that person was going to be there, and they're thrilled to see them. Well, I have to tell you, I, um, I have such respect and, and a little bit of jealousy for the career that you've put together because you know, I've done some some improv, but uh, you know, at a very low level, clearly. That's why I'm sitting here in Bangor, Maine, talking on the radio. <laughs> but you, know, you have done such an amazing job of combining elements of improv, uh, of stand-up, acting, and you've I've created this niche that I think belongs pretty much just to you. Very much. I mean, I I do feel like I have had a really wonderful career, and as much as um, you know, our business is uh, has a, has a <laughs> an undercoating of jealousy uh, <laughs> that, that we that we polish up with a nice coat of paint. Um, you know, as many things as I didn't get to do, I do have to remind myself I've gotten to do a lot of really fun things, and I've made my little kid dreams come true and and i i have gotten to indulge kind of every sort of avenue of my own creativity and um you know that's that's that in itself is 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 a, is a real uh is a real win you know that's 
that's something that I'm very um, proud of and very happy to have been able to make happen. Uh, podcasting has gone crazy in the last few years, but I feel like in many ways that might be the best showcase of your skill set because it allows you to do so many different things. Yeah, what well, I love the medium of podcasting, and I, I have since it became since it, it really became a thing, and um, the possibilities are are endless. You know, I love the theater of the mind aspect of it. So, uh, you know, improv or scripted stuff really um, is such a great place for that. And, you know, you really can do whatever you want and put it up online and, you know, people can find it if they want to. And I, I think that's the most wonderful thing about it is that it's such a, uh, a democratic medium, that there's no gatekeepers. Um, literally anyone can do a podcast and, and put it out there. And, and, and literally anyone can find it. You know, like there's an audience for everybody. And I hope it stays that way. I hope it will always remain uh, an, an avenue that's open to absolutely everybody who wants to be creative. I loved Dead Authors. That was such a great format. Uh, and uh, and having H.G. Wells introduce uh, and talk with those those guests was absolutely fabulous. Thank you so much. That's one of my favorites. Uh, you know, the idea being that, um, you know, H.G. Wells uh, really did have a time machine and he can use it to bring... Uh, now deceased authors into the present and interview them. And it was such a great um, uh, venue for, for avenue for in, for improv. Uh, and it really it made me appreciate how amazing my guests were because, you know, they didn't have to know anything about the author. And the way it was set up was uh, me as the host and characters H.G. Wells, I would, I would provide the facts. They didn't have to do homework on the author. And I would provide the facts, things that actually happened, and put that in a question so that they could say literally anything they wanted to say <laughs> and, um, and be as silly and, and insane as they wanted to be. And uh, it, was, it was a blast. And then I, I did it once where um, I was the guest. Uh, I had uh, my friend Matt Gorley portray uh, Carl Sagan, um, <laughs> who was guest hosting for H.G. Wells, and I played Mark Twain. And, man, it gave me such a new respect for all the people that I'd had guests on the show because it's hard. People are, you know, somebody's throwing questions at you, and you have to immediately come up with an answer uh, and make it funny. And, uh, you know, I, I, I really, it, it was a blast. It was a scary, scary, fun thing to do. And then uh, I think it started during COVID, but uh, Stay Up Homekins. And I say this, uh, I, I say this, uh, not not tongue in cheek, but because it, you may have it, but it doesn't always translate. You and your wife have a great chemistry together. Well, thank you very much. I, I'm glad to hear that. Uh, yeah, we we you know we were locked down and and we really didn't know what to do with ourselves, and and uh, we started this podcast. It was a weekly thing, um, and it was a really nice way to for us to spend some time to connect with each other. And not just be scrolling on our phones or watching TV or whatever, because, you know, it, you get bored and restless when it's a, a snow day that lasts an entire year. Um, and uh, hearing from other people was so wonderful to know that we were connecting with other people and they were connecting with us was really uh, comforting in a weird, weird time. And so we just kept doing it. We, we do it monthly still. And occasionally we put out things like where we'll watch a movie together and, and, uh, record uh commentaries we're doing it that you know people can then download and and essentially watch a movie along with us 
We're talking with Paul F. Tompkins here on Downtown. He'll be at the Waldo Theater April 30th with his show, uh, Variatopia. I, I read a recent interview you did, Paul, and uh, you talked about uh, going through therapy and, and how that's helped you, but you, you also had that resistance that I think a lot of performers, and especially comedians, have the worry that, uh, boy, if you get things figured out in your life, maybe you won't be as funny. Yeah, that and that. I, but I think that is also a, it's a, it's a specific thing that performers can tell themselves, and it really is just a fear that everybody has of therapy. It's an unknown thing. You don't know what you're going to uncover about your own life or your own psyche or your own personality or whatever. And really, the the reality is, you know, you're just gonna you're just gonna learn the reasons why you maybe have bad patterns in your life or unsatisfying patterns in your life or what things that make you sad or, or things that are kind of in your way that prevent you from doing things that you want to do. And I think that everybody can benefit from it. Um, you know, but it is, it's just the unknown. It's just, it's just, you, you, you build it up in your mind that it's going to be some scary thing. And it's really not scary at all. It's in fact, very, very comforting, very free. Did that therapy open some doors for you in terms of your comedy and then give you the, the freedom to talk about things that you might not have brought into your act before? It, it absolutely did. It, it really made me, it, it honed my empathy in a way that I didn't realize I needed. And it made me look at people um, in a, because I was looking at myself in a much more human way, I was realizing how, how much the same we all are. And it made me approach uh, topics in my, in my stand-up, you know, stories I might tell that I would think, well, this is kind of unrelatable. And then I would think, well, okay, what's the emotion behind this story? What am I feeling in this story? Whether it's a story of me being humiliated or anxious or, you know, wrong about something and realizing everybody's had an experience like this. So if I, if I couch it in, here's what I was feeling then people can relate to it no matter what it is. So whether it's me telling a story from working at a retail job or me being on a, a movie set, you know, it doesn't matter the location. The feelings are the feelings. And, you know, being able to feel that connection with an audience uh, through stand-up like that was such a, such a great feeling. And, you know, I really, uh, I, I really love that more than anything. It, and it's, you know, it's deeper sometimes than other times. Sometimes, it, you know, we're, we're all always striving for, transcendent you know when we're doing our sets mm. and when you can reach that moment and feel that deep connection with you know a crowd of strangers and know that they feel a connection to you it's uh i mean there's nothing better than that well and you mentioned empathy and i think i think that's the key not just in comedy but i think in connecting with people through any art form I, have you read cliff nesterhoff's new book outrageous no, I'm a fan of Cliff's. I have not read the book yet. We had him on a few weeks ago, and it's a great book, and he talks about cancel culture and, and this idea that you, you can't say anything anymore and then pretty much disproves it and shows how, hey, you know what? <laughs> Today, people don't go to jail like Lenny Bruce and others did yeah. along the way. Um, but to me, it's the idea, too, that there are people out there in, in the comedy world that – I seem to find success by punching down. And I always thought the best yeah. comedy goes the other way. Oh, 100%. And I mean, the, the reason that Lenny Bruce went to jail, first of all, he wasn't hurting anybody. There, right. there was nothing harmful in anything that he was saying. Um, you know, obviously, some of the words he used, we don't use today in casual conversation, uh, even in like hip clubs. But, um, but he had, his intention was 
to go after the people in power. And he offended their sensibilities. And they jailed him because they didn't like what he had to say. He was, he was uh, uh, you know, flouting their, you know, hypocrisies or their ridiculousness in their faces. They didn't like it, and they put him in jail. Now there's the idea that, uh, you know, you can't say anything anymore. Who are the people that are saying you can't say these things? <laughs> it is people from marginalized groups saying this is harmful and we don't like this. And it's insulting and it's, you know, it's, you're using slurs, you are... Uh, you're 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 essentially doing something that's no better than uh, a minstrel show was many years ago. You are exploiting other people for uh, for cheap laughs. It's bullying. It's not funny. And the bully saying, "Oh, I'm not allowed to say anything anymore," while they are just saying the things they want to say, is the height of hypocrisy, and it it, it underscores what a bully really is. Well said. What's your What's your relationship right now with stand-up, Paul? Well, you know, I took a long break from it. I got into improv for a while, um, you know, learning a new skill. And that was so exciting and so interesting that, um, you know, I didn't do a whole lot of stand-up while I was going through that process. And now uh, feeling like in a, in a good place with improv, not that I am a an improv master. I mean, there's still uh, I still learn everything. I still learn something every time I go on an improv stage because there's so I'm surrounded by so many uh, incredibly talented people that I am trying now to get back into uh, into stand up. And, you know, I am I am. It's not it's not like riding a bike. There is I'm at a different stage of life right now. And I'm trying to figure out what it is that I want to say. Who am I as a stand up now? And, you know, I'm going through the um, the for me painful process of figuring that out. You know, I'm still. I'm still doing uh, sets and I'm still uh, getting laughs, but it it's the it, it it doesn't I don't feel like in the pocket yet, you know. Um, but you know the only way the only way to do it is to do it, and so I'm going to keep doing it and figure it out. How about uh, how do the skills from improv translate that yes and mentality? Oh, I mean that's always useful on stage. It's always useful on stage, especially when you're when you're doing new material. Uh, and that's a, that's a shared um, link between improv and stand-up is you're monitoring the room, you're, uh, you're aware of how well you're doing, you're uh, keenly aware of every sort of uh, noise, silence, distraction that's in the room. Um, you know, your, your brain is doing a million things at once, processing a million things at once while you're still talking. So, um, you know, you have to... You have to be aware of the peaks and valleys. You have to be aware of, okay, it's been, it's been a long time without a laugh here or what feels like a long time. I need to throw something in here. Um, also, it, it's the yes ending yourself saying, okay, that got a laugh. I'm going to follow that thread and see what I come up with. I have, I have notes that are written down, but beyond those notes, I have nothing. So let's, let's see what the audience responds to and then follow those avenues and see what comes up. You were so great as Mr. Peanut Butter on BoJack Horseman. Uh, any uh, uh, any voiceover work in the near future for you? Um, there's always voiceover work. I I, I feel like I've. Um, it's hard to say because, of course, now I've recorded it months ago. Mm, right, <laughs> and, right. You know, I I have. I, it, it will it will probably not come out for a few more months. But um, you know, I love doing. I do a recurring voice on The Great North, which is a a, a wonderful animated show. Um, and Star Trek Lower Decks, I have a recurring character on that, which I'm 
thrilled to be a, a, a strange small part of the Star Trek universe. Um, so yeah, that stuff that stuff comes in, and I really it's really fun. I mean, you know, to to there, this is like such a great time for animation um, that uh, I, I'm really thrilled that it's another it's another place that I can uh, that I can go and and try things out. Uh, the unimpeachable source of Wikipedia. And talking about your uh, your stage attire, referred to you as dapper, but said you prefer foppish. Which is it? I, I do not prefer foppish. Uh, <laughs> I that is absolutely wrong. I, if anything, I prefer to be called a dandy. Oh, oh yes, that is fabulous. Yeah, right. There's a, it feels like there's a, an extreme difference between the two, and that dandy is more more positive than foppish. Yes, I would go see a dandy. A foppish, I, I, I might feel that I wouldn't fit in. I might not understand them so well. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> a dandy is welcoming and a fop is exclusionary. There you go. Perfect. In a nutshell, summed up by Paul F. Tompkins, who will be coming to our Waldo Theater right here in Maine. Can't wait for it. April 30th for Variatopia. Uh, Paul, love your work. I've uh, been a big fan. So great to get to talk with you. Thanks for being with us this afternoon. Oh, Rich, thank you so much. I can't wait to uh, to get there and do that show. That's Paul F. Tompkins with us here on Downtown. We'll take a break for a word from Renewal by Anderson. Back on the other side, we'll discuss the making of the film Mean Girls with author Jennifer Cation Armstrong next on Downtown. The better way to a better window. Renewal by Anderson. Engineered for excellence. That's what Renewal by Anderson's windows and doors have been called. And here's Troy Pearl to tell us more. Hello, everyone. It's Troy Pearl. Our exclusive replacement windows are the product of decades of innovative engineering and rigorous testing that far exceeds industry standards. I hear you're low maintenance, too. (laughs) That's a big yes. If you're referring to our products and how they compare to vinyl. And energy efficiency? Can you really save me money during the long winter months? Yep. And during the summer months, too, our products can dramatically reduce your heating and cooling costs. Great. What kind of a deal you got for me? Glad you asked. All this month, for every window you buy, you can get another at 40% off. And we'll knock an additional 250 bucks off your entire project. For a free in-home consultation, just go to rbagreatermain.com. The better way to a better window. Renewal by Anderson. Downtown, our next guest is the author of a number of terrific books about television history, including Seinfeldia, Mary and Lou and Rhoda and Ted, and When Women Invented Television. She's got a brand new book out called So Fetch, The Making of Mean Girls and Why We're Still So Obsessed with It. Our conversation with author Jennifer Cation Armstrong on Downtown. Jennifer, thanks for being with us again. Thank you for having me. My goodness, you do such a, a wonderful job in your books at, at taking these shows or films that we know so well 
and, and making them seem new to us in, in the way you tell the story behind the story. Thank you. That is exactly what I'm trying to do. So. Well, mission accomplished there. And uh, and the story of Mean Girls, which is such a fascinating one, uh, really begins not with Tina Fey, but with an author named Rosalind Wiseman. Yes, exactly. It was. It's actually really interesting. This is based on a parenting manual, essentially, for parents of teen girls that was called Queen Bees and Wannabes. And it was actually quite a sensation when it came out in the early 2000s, which is how, of course, Tina Fey heard about it and wanted to adapt it, and it eventually became Mean Girls. And and her goal for the film was, I think she referred to it as a more hopeful Heathers. That's right. That's right, which I love because Heathers is quite dark. Uh, I did rewatch it for this, and I, I was, you know, even though having seen it before, I was like, oh, that's right. It really is quite dark. Um, so, yeah, it, it, has a, it has a real kind of, like, you know, optimistic ending, essentially, that um, these kinds of issues can be overcome, whereas Heather's was more, mostly about blowing up the school instead. <laughs> <laughs> well, she got the help of uh, SNL producer Lauren Michaels, but different than, than some of the other SNL spinoffs because they have not all been very successful when it comes to movies, but she had a lot more creative control in this one. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this, of course, is not one of those other ones where it was kind of like based on a sketch that was really mm. popular, and then they do it for two hours, and you're like, oh, this isn't as much fun at two hours. Um, this was kind of this fresh new material from that Rosalind Wiseman book, and I think that was really smart. She also didn't put herself at the center of this movie, which I think is, you know, very different from a lot of previous stars uh, becoming movie stars in this way. She kind of wrote this actually really smart and funny script and let a lot of other people shine, which I think is interesting and very generous. Well, and it sounds like a real key was getting the services of Mark Waters as director, a guy who had done Freaky Friday before. He had worked with Lindsay Lohan, and it seems like he created just a great environment on the set. He really did. I have never, very rarely have I heard more people say more nice things about a person in Hollywood <laughs> than, I, than I heard these people who were on in this cast. And it was a lot of young people. You know, it's not just that main cast, but everyone playing the high schoolers. If you think about it, this is dozens and dozens and dozens of kids who were essentially in their teens and 20s playing teenagers. And that can be hard because most of them were quite inexperienced. And he made it fun he would do a lot of takes so that he would just, you know, just keep rolling and, and have them kind of loosen up and play and have a really good time. And everyone just said, and you can see it in the final product, right? Um, you know, the best, the best directing often doesn't announce itself. I think it's just like goes down really smooth. And this is a tightly edited, beautifully made, everyone at the top of their game film. What's in a name? I'm not sure the movie would have had the resonance it has if it had stuck with its original title. Yes, the original title was Homeschooled, which, you know, refers to its main character, Katie Heron, who was homeschooled and then comes into this public high school and kind of has to deal with the cliques. Uh, but they eventually decided to change the name and went with Mean Girls, which was actually um, part of a headline that was on a story about Rosalind Wiseman that kind of caught Tina Fey's attention to begin with in the New York Times Magazine. And it just sums it up perfectly if you think about it. And it's like something that we now use as a phrase. And I think that's key to its longevity is that, you know, you'll say things like, oh, you know, my daughter's dealing with a mean girl situation at school or that kind of thing. 
And I think, you know, this is one of those situations where having that super straightforward, uh, no-nonsense title worked so well. Well, teen comedies have been around forever, but I feel like this was certainly one of the first, if not the first, to look at the experience of being a teenager and going to high school through the eyes of young women. Exactly. I mean, in this very specific way, right, that feels very rooted and real, and it's about their relationships with each other and not about, you know, a boy. There is a boy situation, but I feel like the boy is so much of just kind of a pawn for, you know, the two main characters, Regina and Katie. And that, to me, is what's so unique about this. You know, I watched it with some current 6th and 8th through 8th graders last year and asked them about it, and they were very focused on the friendships. And I said, what about the boy? And they did, they were like, who? <laughs> <It's> like they, <laughs> they weren't even that interested in him. It was like really the resonant part here is about the girls' friendships and the extreme intricacies of them. Uh, the story of the casting of the film is fascinating and, and really everything they went through to find the perfect person to play Regina George. Yes, they really, you know, they had a lot of young women around the same age range. And then it just became, you know, I believe the casting director, Marcy Leroff, said to me, it, it became kind of like a chess game. You know, they were like moving everyone around the board. And um, at first, Lindsay Lowen actually came in and wanted to play Regina. And that was kind of, she really wanted that if she was going to star. And they had to kind of talk her into playing essentially the main character, Katie, who goes through more of an arc and is kind of more of that like likable one that you follow through. And they said, you know, you're the star, you're the one everyone loves, you have to do this. And so from there, um, they had Rachel McAdams, who had actually read for the role of Katie. And at, they, she had been told she was too old. She was 25 at the time. And um, they thought, so what if we bring her back in for this extremely dominant character, Regina George? Maybe it makes sense that she's 25 in that case, right? Because, you know, I don't know. I, I feel like I always had a girl in my high school who was like, you know, seemed kind of like she was 25, right? <laughs> and she was kind of a Regina George. So that was the real key. And then seeing her with Lindsay Lohan, Mark Waters actually said, you know, I've worked with Lindsay before. She has such a strong personality. I've never seen her intimidated, but she was a little intimidated when she met this older girl, uh, Rachel McAdams, it, to, to read with her. And he loved that dynamic for these characters. And that was where it really came together. But also Amanda Seyfried, who ends up playing that the ditzy role of Karen, um, had been in strong contention for the Regina character. And in fact, Lauren Michaels, who you mentioned before, was producer on this. Um, he actually preferred her for the role, but he was outvoted. And then finding someone to play the role of Damien was was so important, and particularly to Tina Fey, since he was based on a, a friend of hers. That's right. Damien Holbrook is the is the real Damien in real life. He's uh, a TV guide writer now, and so lovely. And he grew up with her, and they did uh, theater together in their teens. And he's very strongly based on basically Damien and Damien's brother, who they you know, all grew up together. And, uh, yeah, she, I think she had a, maybe an extra hard time because this was emotional, you know, and it's like she had this very clear vision for him. And Daniel Francesi, who ended up playing him, um, did come in and read for the role, and everyone loved him in the waiting room. Um, mm. <laughs> super charming in the waiting room and they thought this is going to be it you know and then then when they went into the actual casting room maybe he got nervous or whatever you know things happen in auditions 
And they were like, oh, that wasn't quite what we had hoped for. But when they kept looking and didn't find anyone, they actually asked him to come out to the table read. They had cast everyone else, and they had him come out, fly out to the table read in Los Angeles. And that was crazy, too, because they had him come to the table read. Everybody else had their parts, and he didn't have it yet. That's right. So that was essentially his audition, which you can imagine how nerve-wracking that might have been. However, Mark Waters said, I guess, you know, Daniel really understood the assignment and understood the stakes. And he said he really came to play there. He said he he played Damien like it was a movie about Damien and that's what <laughs> they loved. And he had people laughing out loud the whole time. And if you've seen the movie, you know that, of course, he did because he had some of the best lines. And he just, uh, Mark Waters said once he did that table read, he was so locked into the character that Mark didn't really even have to give him notes later on in the filming it was just he got it in that in that moment that was the critical moment we're talking with jennifer cation armstrong about her new book so fetch the making of mean girls and why we're still so obsessed with it the the movie was filmed in canada and i love the stories in the book about the the canadian kids who were brought in to play the other students i you you may have picked up on it i love that it's some of my favorite stuff that, you know, there were all of these people who were late teens, early 20s. They all knew each other, not all, but a lot of them knew each other because they were all in Toronto, you know, aspiring actors, all going to the same auditions. They had all, inter- you know, auditioned for Degrassi at one point or the, the other, which is a huge ca- Canadian show. And they just, I think that lent it an extra feeling of like, this is a high school, you know, because they actually did know each other and got to hang out on the set a lot. And they were divided into little cliques and really had that feeling of it. And they all had this strange feel, you know, strange afterlife of the movie as well, where each of them got, you know, kind of these one or two great lines to say in the movie that later became quite famous. And so because of Tina Fey's amazing script and because she was so generous with those jokes, they all got kind of a moment in that movie. And when it comes to moments, I, I think maybe my favorite story in the book is the story of the actor who played Glenn Coco, who's not even <laughs> billed and, as you pointed out, didn't even get paid. That's right. Um, this is such a great it, – it goes with what I was just saying, right? It's so sort of casual and everybody knows each other. He had a bunch of friends on the movie. He had auditioned and didn't get a role, but he lived across the street from – where they were filming, and so he kind of knew because of his friends. And he thought, I'm going to go over and say hi to them and maybe cop some food from the craft services <laughs> table because he was a starving actor at the time. He was, like, 19 years old. And so he went over and did that, and as he was doing that, Mark Waters came by and, like, pointed at him and said, hey, you, and he thought, oh, my God, I'm in trouble. I've, I've been found out. And instead, Mark said, I have a role for you. It has a name and everything. And so they whisked him off to wardrobe, gave him a second shirt because he was going to be in two scenes. So he wore his own in one and theirs in another. And, you know, if you watch the Glenn Coco scene where he gets the four candy cane grams, uh, you only see really the back of his head. But you can kind of see more of him if you're paying a lot of attention. He's sitting in front of Gretchen Wieners <laughs> in the scene where she gives a report in English class about Julius Caesar and kind of compares Julius Caesar to Regina. So... That, those were his two scenes. He never signed a contract, never never got credit, you know, never had a credit, um, never was hired. And he kind of went on with his life. And it wasn't until Mean Girls took on a new life online about 10 years later that 
the internet essentially cross-referenced him with he continued to act and people figured out that it was him having seen him on shows like Suits and figured out who this actor was and kind of, you know, he started being recognized. He has embraced it since. His name is David Rial and is just a lovely guy. And he kind of gets a kick out of the fact that he is this, you know, catchphrase for the ages, even though he had zero lines in the movie. He is still, I mean, people get so excited when I talk about Glenn Coco now. Well, and the whole social media aspect is, is I think, every bit as fascinating as the making of the film, because you know, otherwise, without social media and the internet, people remember Mean Girls as this uh, really terrific film that captured uh, the zeitgeist of that moment in time. But then, Along comes social media, along comes the age of the meme, and now Mean Girls is everywhere. Exactly. It just was a strange coincidence, essentially, of timing that it comes along right around, you know, it, it captures millennials' hearts, essentially, when they're teenagers. And then a little while later, memes and gifs are invented, and millennials are the ones who really knew how to make them from the beginning. I mean, they were literally being hired by major media companies because they knew how to make memes and gifs and what did they reach for but this movie that they loved so much it is also very meme and gifable right it is um, <laughs> it's great to look at and it has all of these one-liners that tina fey wrote and so you know this these memes just proliferated and people will reach for them in any number of situations now it's like you know, when it could be anything, there was one story of, you know, the Met Ball, which is where often like celebrities are walking the red carpet with really weird outfits on. And um, this actor named Jonathan Malin, who had this line when there's a meltdown at school and he calls his mom and says, Mom, can you call, come and get me? I'm scared. Um, that was being used everywhere. Um, you know, when Ivanka even Trump, Hillary Clinton dropping one. That's right. That's right. Um, when, when, um, Donald Trump kind of taunted her when she said she wasn't going to run again. He said something like, oh, well, we, I'm so sorry, I can't run against her, that kind of thing. When he was still on Twitter, he said this on Twitter, and her response was just Regina George saying, why are you so obsessed with me? So <laughs> there you go. <laughs> well, and then the fascinating story of the trip to Broadway that apparently began with uh, Tina Fey hearing that People were, were doing their own sort of little improvised takes on the film. And she said, I don't I don't want somebody else getting their hands on this. If it's going to be a play, I want it to be my play. That's right. I loved that, that she had said that she was hearing that, like, college kids were, were doing it. And she, I think she also really harbored um, latent Broadway dreams. And this was really her big moment. And her husband is a songwriter. So the, all of those factors are important as well. And I think she kind of had it in the back of her head anyway. And then she hears this. So she just thought, all right, we're going to go for it. And I do think that this second life on the Internet gave that a lot of steam, too, because, you know, this doesn't happen till the 2010s. This doesn't happen till more than 10 years after the, the movie. So it's not like an immediate like, oh, how can we capitalize on it? It was more like, oh, people are still talking about this. People are more into it than ever. Why not make a musical? And so she was able to team up with her husband and, of course, some others and make the musical on Broadway, which was quite successful. And I love the fact that she was able to update the musical and, and correct some things that they didn't feel great about in the original version. And then she talked about where is this musical going to be in 10 years? How do we write something that will be as timeless as a musical can be? 
That's right. And, you know, it is kind of a nice do-over, right? Because it's not a straight-up reboot. And, you know, there were things, in as, as many things in 2004, there was some stuff in there that was, you know, stuff we wouldn't say now. <laughs> and so they were able to kind of update that. They, they were able to incorporate social media more, which obviously became much more of a factor in the time since Mean Girls, and of course would be a huge factor in teen girls' lives. And you've seen it, you know, yet again now with the musical movie in theaters. It's so hard to parse this all out. But now that they've made a movie of the musical, they were able to kind of update, do another round of updates and um, incorporate things like TikTok. Yeah, and it's it's been such a journey. And I know I'm, I'm trying to remember the other film, obviously the producers, but there producers. haven't been many films that have gone this route of film to Broadway musical and then to film musical. That's right. It's basically the uh, the producers and Hairspray are oh, what I'm there you go. that have done that, yeah. Well, I, you know, I work, I teach high school. And so, uh, <laughs> you know, working with uh, working with high school students, seeing and what made it work is the, the reality of it, the way kids talk to each other and about each other. I thought the, the casting of, of the SML, SNL people as the adults, but, but not being the focus and, and not being over-the-top characters was a stroke of genius as well. Completely, and it's and that's a funny one because at first the studio didn't want it because they thought like, oh, these other SNL-related movies haven't done that well. But they were so kind of, you know, they were able to do such a great job with these smaller roles and just really let the kids shine but kill it when they were, you know, especially if you think of someone like Amy Poehler playing uh, Regina's mom, like, they are just incredible, and they, you know, the director didn't really have to worry about him, them, and he could just focus on the kids. So, what has given this this film and now Broadway show and now film again? What's given it uh, these legs to make it uh, not just hang around for twenty years, but to grow in popularity and add new generations of fans? Well, I think it's a lot of what we have talked about here. But the biggest thing, and I think nothing else, none, none of the other stuff works if this part isn't true which is just that there is a universal truth at the center that kind of doesn't go away we wish it would we wish people could just get along right and not have these issues we wish we had a race to them all but you know i think the reason that it sticks is because this really had a truth at its center that we all deal with not just teen girls you know it's like we all have moments in our lives where we wish we were part of the in-group and we would do almost anything to get there. And we deal with difficult people. Um, so we were just talking about, you know, even in national politics, this comes up all the time. So I think that part is what makes it last. And then, of course, if, you know, you have to have the other parts as well, which is that it's so much fun. It's beautiful to look at. It's perfectly made and paced and everything else. It has all of these lines that we go back to over and over and then it's sort of omnipresent because of these memes that have been you know flying around the internet for the last 10 or 15 years so all of that together makes it almost feel like you know it just came out and i mean now it has in musical form but before that even it just sort of felt like this timeless thing and i was told over and over again and it's true that you know girls were just kind of like watching this as a rite of passage at their 12th birthdays. It's like 12th birthday comes, you got to watch Mean Girls at the at the slumber party. That's just how it is. 
Well, and, and who doesn't want their tormentor from high school to meet the same fate as Regina? <laughs> Just a light bus accident. Like, right. <laughs> light bus accident. No lasting damage. She was playing lacrosse at the end. <laughs> well, it is Wednesday, is well. so uh, we're, we're wearing pink today in honor of this conversation, uh, Jennifer. Uh, the book is an absolute delight. It, it reminds us what we love about the film and uh, and what we love about uh Telling a story that's that's true and relates to so many people. So uh, congratulations on another wonderful book, So Fetch, The Making of Mean Girls, and Why We're Still So Obsessed With It. Thank you so much. Boy, it's such a good book, and she is always great to talk with her friend, Jennifer Cation Armstrong, talking about The Making of Mean Girls, her book, So Fetch. Thanks to Jennifer, thanks to Paul F. Tompkins, and of course to you for being with us here on Downtown. Brought to you every week by Renewal by Anderson. Downtown is produced by Carrie Haskell. I'm Rich Kimball. We will see you next time right here on Downtown.